0: Morning. Show of hands this morning. How many of you are parents? Raise your hands. Thank you. How many uh, are not parents but plan one day to be? Raise your hands. Some of you are tentative, I see, on that. (laughs) How many of you have ever had parents? Raise your hand. How many of you are single? Just out of curiosity. Raise your hands up high. Okay, keep them up. Now look around, quickly, those with your hands raised. (laughs) I've done my part in your dating relationship. Our text this morning is in 1 Samuel chapter 1. We're continuing a series called Movers and Shakers, based on the influence of those figures who influenced the nation of Israel in their formative kingdom years. We introduced it last week by saying principally we're going to look at the lives of Samuel, the prophet, Saul, the politician, and David, the poet. But we began, as the story began, with a woman named Hannah. And we continue that story this morning in a message called A Child on Loan to God. Now, I don't stand before you this morning as an expert in parenting. I have never found one yet anyway. I am not one. First of all, because I'm in the process of parenting. It's not over yet in our lives. We're still in that process. Second, I only have one child. And some of you could tell me a thing or two. You have a brood of them. And third, because my son's opinion of my parenting changes from day to day. One day I'm the greatest dad who walked the face of the earth. Another day it's like, you are not cool, dad. But I've always believed that our children's opinions of us in their younger years are not as important as what their opinion will be once they're raised as adults. I found a little story I want to begin with. It's a legend about our first parent, God, raising his first two kids, Adam and Eve. It is simply a legend, just a fable, a story, but it's, it's not like or unlike our own experiences, parents. It says, after creating heaven and earth, God created Adam and Eve. And the first thing he said to them was, don't. Don't what? Adam replied. Don't eat the forbidden fruit, God said. Forbidden fruit? We got forbidden fruit? Hey, Eve, we got forbidden fruit. No way, said Eve. Yes, way. Don't eat that fruit, said God. Why? Because I'm your creator and I said so, said God, wondering why he hadn't stopped after making elephants. <laughs> Just a few minutes later, God saw the kids taking an apple break and was angry. Didn't I tell you not to eat that fruit? The first parent said. Uh huh, Adam replied. Then why did you, said God. I don't know, Eve answered. She started it, Adam said. Did not, did so, did not. Having had it with the two of them, God's punishment was that Adam and Eve should have their own children. (laughs) Now I listen to that story and I say, Not so. No way, children are not a punishment from God. They are a heritage from the Lord. They are a blessing of God. Granted, they are a challenge, but they are the future of our nation and the future of the church. Children are God's affirmation that the world ought to go on. He said to Adam and Eve, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the entire earth the first pregnancy that we had ended in a miscarriage it's the lot of many young couples more th- than i really knew at first it was hard for us and and then there was the second pregnancy and that resulted in a son called nathan that we dedicated here in 86 when the church building first opened and what a thrill he has been a delight he's now a teenager The third pregnancy, (laughs) after the first trimester, we lost the child, as some of you will remember, and that broke our hearts. It was devastating. We tried so long for more children. We loved Nathan and we wanted more, but we discovered through all that that God wanted us in His sovereignty to have one son. Now, before I was a parent, I thought being a parent would be pretty easy. I was the youngest of four boys, and so you say, oh, well, you were spoiled. No, I was the slave. <laughs> and I remember thinking, you know, this parenting gig is pretty easy. I kind of get it. The kids do all the work. Parents give all the advice Till I had a son of my own, and it was like, hello, welcome to the real world of responsibility, the world of paying bills, the world of sacrifice, No parent I have ever met has got parenting down pat. There's no such thing as a perfect parent, except one that's God. The rest of us belong to the PTA, poor, tired adults. (laughs) In fact, you know, parenting is is the one job that by the time you're experienced, you're unemployed, you're just getting it down pat how to be a good parent. Boom, they're out of the house. A lot of us are in the position of Hannah. We prayed for children, God has given us children, and then we ask, Now what? How do I raise this little critter to become a man or woman of God so that it doesn't feel like it is punishment to me, but it feels like the children are a heritage from the Lord? There's three words that bring out three activities in our text that describe the parenting of Elkanah and Hannah toward their son Samuel. The first is worshiping. Second, nurturing. Third, launching. Those three words, those three activities we look at this morning. Now, I recognize that some of you are single and you're going, oh, couldn't we have another message? Why parenting? Why not? One day you will be one and you'll wish you'd remember every word of this message. Uh, Some of you have been there and done that. You have raised your children, you have grandchildren. Let me just say that I hope this would reinforce some things in your own life because we need your mentorship among younger couples. We really need parents who have been there and done that to tell us young upstarts, some of us at least, the way it's done, the way it's done right. With that in mind, I draw your attention back to verse 17. Where if you remember, last week we left off with Hannah crying before God. She was barren and she prayed that she could have a child. Eli, the high priest, thought she was drunk. She was not, and she describes that here. Verse 17, Eli answered and said, Go in peace, the God of Israel grant your petition which you have asked of him. And she said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. The high priest saw her and said, well, listen, God bless you. I hope you get what you asked for. Then, verse 19, Then they arose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord and returned and came to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. Worshipping is the first activity in parenting I want to talk about. Worship is the center of our home. We have made it so. We have as a joint covenant, my wife and I said, God will be at the center of this house. And we didn't make that decision after we had kids, before. Before we even got married, we decided God was going to be the center of our lives. And when we got married, He'd be the center of our home. So that our house revolves around worship. Worship determines our activities, determines which movies we see, what our schedule will be like during the week, what friends we have, etc., We want our son to grow up worshiping God. We don't want him growing up worshiping money or status or fame or pleasure or toys or entertainment, but God. So often, in the morning, we're up way before Nathan, I think every morning. We'll go downstairs, and by the time Nathan comes downstairs and wipes the sleep out of his eyes, he'll see one of us or both of us sitting in a chair with our Bible open, having devotions or praying. That's what he sees a lot. And he'll come down, and we'll ask him to join us, and we'll ask him to give input, and sometimes he'll give us a Bible study that actually is quite good. But he's learning that worship is to be the center of our house. However, as parents, you can never pass that on unless you have it, because you can't pass on what you don't have, right? Paul wrote to Timothy and said, the hardworking farmer must first partake of the fruit of himself. He eats it first. He enjoys it first. Then he has it to pass on. And so it is with parenting. Notice something, though, in verse 19. It says, Then they arose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord, and they returned and came to their house. When did they worship? Was it after they found out she was pregnant no, way before, in fact, the, the day after the nightly episode that she had of anguish, crying out before the Lord, God, please give me a son, just, just do it. Not having yet that prayer answered, they wake up the next morning and they worship. The Hebrew word shacha, to bow down and pay homage to, it suggests a heartfelt submission of their lives. But what I want you to notice, and let's zero in a little closer on it. She worships God, not because God answers her prayer. But way before there was any indication that she would get what she asked for. In fact, verse 20 suggests a long time before. It says, in the process of time, they had a child. It was a long time before her prayer was answered that they worship God. Which brings us to the very heart of what worship is. This is worship. We don't worship based upon God giving us everything we ask for, but we worship God because He's God. The very word worship in our English language comes from an old Anglo Saxon word that has two words put together worth ship, or literally worth they used to say. It's the state of worth. It's the declaration of value. When we worship God, we are simply stating, God, you are valuable to me. You are worth the honor that I'm giving to you. We worship Him. Whether we ask God for something and He gives it to us, or He says, no, God's still worthy of worship. James Hewitt, in one of his books describes a scene that he encountered at a church in Connecticut. He was there for a Sunday worship service, like this. It was a liturgical service. The church knelt down and they sang the Hallelujah Chorus. He noticed out of the corner of his eye a, a woman with her hands raised in worship. What was unusual is that her hands were twisted, contorted. She obviously had advanced stages of arthritis. Next to her were crutches. And there was that visual... A contorted, arthritic woman lifting her bent arms in worship. And he thought, my Lord, what causes Christians to sing hallelujah in that condition? What's the answer? God's worthy is the answer. Whether she is healed or not, whether she is contorted or not, she knew it and she worships before God. The appropriate response for God's kids is never griping, I will gripe unto the Lord, no, I will worship God, however, I've noticed that many will quit the regularity of worship when they don't get what they've asked, sort of I'll take my football and go home kind of a vibe. I asked God for this. He didn't pull through. So they'll pull back in the regularity of attending church, regularity of devotions, or regularity of their service and involvement. It's not that they deny God. They just disregard God. God has not met their expectations. And they have become charter members of the official Bless Me Club. That's that's what they're in for. They're in it for themselves. Bless me, God. It's almost like, and they never state this, but they live this way. Tell you what, God, you bless me real good and I'll bless your holy name. Deal? No deal. They don't get it. We worship not because he's Santa Claus, but because he's God Almighty. And he's always worthy of our praise. The point I want to make here is that Samuel had parents who worshiped God as a lifestyle. Not as a liturgy. And that shaped, it molded Samuel's early life. Parents that worship God regularly. A lot of times, parents will have their kids and then after they have their kids decide it's time to get involved in worship. It's like, hey, forget God. God isn't a part of my life, but you know, now that I have kids and stuff, you know, it's important that they get a good spiritual education. We'll bring them to church. And I'm not, not necessarily knocking that. Well, I guess I am knocking it, huh? Because I want to see people get involved at any stage of their life in worship, but my suggestion is do it first. Do it before. Lay that as your foundation. Paul wrote to young Timothy and said, I have been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am now persuaded lives also in you. That's the way it was in this family, Hannah and Elkanah, with Samuel. I can't help but believe that the revival in Israel didn't start with Samuel, but started with Samuel's mom and dad, who brought Samuel up in this atmosphere of worship. That's why whenever we dedicate children at our services, we not only pray for the child, but we often pray for the parents. They need to be dedicated to God before that kid's ever going to be dedicated. You can't pass on what you don't have. Well, they had it, and they gave it. There were four scholars that were speaking about Bible translations. And, you know, scholars love to argue the fine points of theology. And they were discussing various Bible translations, which one is the best. And one guy said, you know, the old King James is the best translation ever. Nothing comes close to the majestic style of the old King James. And the second scholar said, well, I appreciate the legacy of the old King James, but I I prefer the NIV. It's contemporary. It connects. It's got a lower reading level for most people. I love it. The third one said, oh, no, 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 no. The New American Standard version is the most accurate to the Greek syntax of any translation. Well, they were arguing, and the fourth one chimed in and said, you know, I've always liked my parents' translation the best. And they kind of chuckled. So, what do you mean, your parents' translation? He said, Well, my parents translated every page of the scripture into their lives. They lived it. And it was the most convincing translation of the Bible I've ever seen in my life. Well, Elkanah and Hannah got up early in the morning and they worshiped God before any prayer was answered. Worshiping is the first activity of their parenting. Second is nurturing. Verse 20. So it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived, bore a son, and called his name Shmuel in Hebrew, God hears, saying, Because I have asked for him from the Lord. Now the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, Not until the child is weaned, then I will take him that he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever. So Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. That's always the best answer, guys. (laughs) Wait until you have weaned him, only let the Lord establish his word. Then the woman stayed and nursed her son until she had weaned him. Back in verse 20, notice the phrase, in the process of time. I found that's how God works. God works in the process of time, more so than instantly, but over time. It's a process. I found that God works His supernatural will very naturally through the process of time. And and notice the combination of these two elements. Elkanah knew his wife, that is, she had, he had intimate relations with her, sexual relations, as husbands and wives do. And God remembered her. Elkanah knew, God remembered. In the process of time, God's will was brought about very naturally. Well, the child was born, they called him Samuel. They named child, children usually on the eighth day of a son's life. It was the day of circumcision. And the way it worked in Judaism is that Mom stayed at home for seven days after she gave birth to her son, 14 days if it was a daughter. And then 33 days later, she was to appear in the tabernacle bringing an offering if it was a boy, 66 days later if it was a girl. But I draw your attention to verse 21 and 22, the word weaned. I'm not going to go up to Shiloh, she said. You go up that I might stay and wean the child. That sounds like a short time. It's actually a long time. Between three to five years. Jewish mothers in those days breastfed their children up to three years. And stayed at home from three to five years and they called it the weaning process. So it's time to go to Shiloh. Elkanah gets up, packs the bags, gets in the camel wagon and they're ready to go to Shiloh. You'd think that By this time, the new mom would have said, Hey, man, I can't wait to go to Shiloh. I need a little vacation. We'll get a babysitter. And in those days, it was very typical for Jewish women to get a wet nurse to nurse their child for them. But she said, No. You go up and worship. I'm going to stay home and wean my child. Now, some of you might be thinking back to last week's study. And you say, ah, that's child-centered parenting. I suggest it is not. And I'll tell you why. Because once the child is weaned, between three and five years old, she's going to cart him off to the tabernacle and leave him for good to be raised in the ministry of the tabernacle. So she is simply saying, in these early, formative, developing years, I want to make sure I'm at home with this child, nurturing him. Weaning him, giving him love. The home is the greenhouse of life. The home is where kids learn or fail to learn stability and security. A British psychiatrist by the name of John Bowlby said, The young child's hunger for his mother's love and presence is as great as his hunger for food. Her absence inevitably generates a powerful sense of loss and anger. so it was the custom. I'm going to wean the child. I'm not going to even go up to the tabernacle. The word weaned, however, means more than nurse. The literal translation is to deal fully with somebody. You go up, I'll stay home, and deal fully with this young child. It suggests spiritual training in the original, spiritual principles being passed on. Once again, Paul noted that Timothy, he said, From infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures. You know, Jewish kids were weaned on the Bible. I mean, they got it every single day at mom and dad's knee. And it was given to them young, and the training was very intense. Listen to this quote from Rabbi Judah Ben Tima. He said, Boys should learn Scripture at age 5, they should learn the Mishnah, that's the oral law of the Jews, at age 10. They should learn to fulfill the law at age 13. And they should study the Talmud, that's all of the volumes of commentary, at age 15. That's starting them young, man, and intense. And usually mom was the one that gave the early learning in the scriptures. The Jews had a great proverb. They said, God couldn't be everywhere, so he created mothers. Of course, God is everywhere, but he did create mothers and gave them and dads the responsibility of training kids. Now, it's not all the mother. In verse 23, notice that Elkanah says, let the Lord establish his word. You see, both parents were in agreement of this. Great, fine, you stay home, and may God establish his word. They both agreed on this method of nurturing. And by the way, it is the parent's responsibility. If you're a parent, you probably memorized by now Deuteronomy chapter 6. It says to moms and dads, here you are, you've got the law, you've got my covenant, my principles. Now impress them on your children. And talk about them when you get up in the morning, when you sit down during the day. When you walk out the door, when you come in. Impress these truths upon the heart's Of your children. Did you know that a father's worth among the Jewish community was judged by the kinds of kids that he raised? That's how they gauged his life. What kind of a man is he? Well, let's see how his kids turn out. Charles Spurgeon beautifully said Before a child reaches seven, teach him all the way to heaven. Better yet, the work will thrive if he learns before he's five. Francis Xavier in the 1500s boldly stated, Give me the children till they're seven, and anyone can have them after that. He knew that those first years, formidable years of training, were of utmost importance in the future of that child. As you know, most decisions for Jesus Christ are made when children are very young, and parents ought to encourage that. Charles Spurgeon was converted at 12 years of age, started preaching as a teenager. I'd love to have heard that first sermon. Polycarp, one of the early church martyrs, was converted at nine years of age. Jonathan Edwards, one of the great intellects of the American pulpit, saved at seven. Count Zinzendorf, if you've never heard of him, you ought to be familiar with him. He started the great mission movement among the Moravians. Converted at age four, and he signed a covenant, probably just scribbled, and he uttered this prayer, Dear Savior, do thou be mine, and I will be thine. Four years old. Nurturing does that. If I were to sum up what I see in these verses, number one, nurturing involves concentrated time with your kids. Concentrated time. I don't buy the quality versus quantity myth. It takes concentrated time to nurture kids. Period. That's how it works. We've got a window of time with our children. My son's 13. There was a time when dad was like, wow. Now his peers probably exert a lot more influence than his parents. So the window of time is early. Second, nurturing involves spiritual training. And that's my responsibility. I never say it's the church's responsibility to teach my kids the Bible. No, it's not. It's parents' responsibility. Church has them, what, 52 hours a year if you go every Sunday? You've got them all day long, maybe, or hours each night. Somebody once said, an ounce of parent is worth a pound of clergy. I like that. Third, nurturing involves being in the home. She stayed home. You go to the tabernacle. You do your deal. The first few years, I'm going to be in the home training these kids, this child, Samuel. I was looking around my living room yesterday where we usually have our devotions, our family room, and just thinking of all the lessons we've talked about with Nathan there, hoping that he's going to remember back to that living room when we talk about these things when he was just a young kid. And then I've set aside certain nights when I can, just hang out nights with my son. And he knows that these are nights when he can bring up any topic. And dad's not going to ask him, Why do you think that way? Well, where'd you learn that? We're just going to talk about what's on his heart. I'm not going to push his buttons. We're going to discuss and bring in the Bible and have a friendly conversation. And he opens up during those times. But it takes that time being in the home. I have never yet found a parent who has bemoaned the nurturing process. Have you? Have you ever heard of a parent when life's all done, they've raised their kids, say, man, I only regret spending, I spent so much time with my kids. I trained them in the Bible so much, I really regret that. Never have I found that to be true. Now, I know there are sacrifices. Children come into our lives and, Before we were jet-setting around, we could maintain our own schedule, and now it's diaper after diaper, and life drags on. Or we pull peanut butter out of their hair, or find dead frogs in their pockets, or things like that. But I'll tell you what, it's worth it, because it's easier and better to build boys than it is to repair men. And I think our society has found that out. Socrates used to say that he wondered how men were so careful in training their colts, but so indifferent to training their kids. They give so much time to their work training their colts to farm, but their family went haywire. Don't let it happen. Even if you're charter members of the PTA, don't let it happen. Train up, Proverbs 22 says, train up a child in the way that he should go. When he's old, he won't depart from it. We've all heard that. The old Jewish sages used to retranslate that verse this way If you don't teach the ox to plow when he's young, you'll find it hard to teach him when he's fully grown. Train him young. Worshipping, nurturing. Brings us to the third activity of their parenting the launch. Launching, verse 24. And when she had weaned him, picture a kid of about five years of age, probably, she took him with her, with three bulls, one apha of flour, a skin of wine and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh. And the child was young. Notice the Scripture focuses our attention on that fact. Then they slaughtered a bull and brought the child to Eli. This is the high priest who saw the gal weeping some months before or years before. And she said, "Oh my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood by you here praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed... And the Lord has granted me my petition which I've asked of him. Therefore, I also have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. And so they worshipped the Lord there. Strange phrase, isn't it? Here, God, my child is on loan to you. I've lent him to the Lord. That word literally means an irrevocable giving over to God. She's saying, I've nurtured him for five years. Now I'm going to leave him with you. Here, you take him and raise him in the tabernacle to be a prophet of God. I told God if he'd give me a son, I'd lend him to him. So, here, five years old, leaving home. You say, oh man, that's way too young. It's always too young, isn't it, parents? No matter what age they are. we like, Oh, they're not ready for life yet. They're only 43. Just to give you a little background, maybe to ease your conscience on this, leaving a kid at five years of age, there really was no specified adolescent period in those days. Child grew up, was taught the scripture, and taught to accept responsibility early. In fact, there was a ritual that's still in place today, that at age 12 and 13, for girls and boys respectively, there was the bat mitzvah and the bar mitzvah. They became a child of the commandment, adult members of the community of faith. And at those ages, they were basically told, you are responsible now for your own actions before God. If you sin, it's between you and God. If you don't, it's between you and God. But you are now responsible in the community of faith. Charles Spurgeon said, A child of five, if properly instructed, can as truly believe and be regenerated as an adult. Now, my point in all this, this launching, is uh, get away for just a moment from the emotion of leaving a child at five and get to the goal of the parents. What is the goal of Elkanah and Hannah for Samuel? It's to serve God. The one goal they have had in the worshiping and the nurturing is to see that kid launched out and not necessarily attend the best schools or have a high income base with disposable income, or live close enough to home so that we can see you every weekend. Their goal was that the child would serve God, whatever God's will was. And that is the most admirable goal of any parent. I want you to turn to Psalm 127. We'll close with this. Psalm 127. We've alluded to it last week and this week. It's only five verses. I think we can make it through. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Who's the center of that home? God, worship once again. It's, in, it's vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for he gives his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, not an inconvenience, Not a tax burden, not a time-demander, but a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Now, some parents uh, question the heritage thing from time to time. Uh, There are episodes in your child's life, especially, say, the teenage years, you're trying to think, Heritage? I don't know about this. Or maybe babies, when they're demanding constant attention. Somebody once described a baby as a digestive apparatus with a loud noise at one end and no responsibility at the other end. But I like what one author said all husbands and wives borrow their children. Our children are not our own. Our children belong to God. He's loaned them to us for a season. Most marriages contain these borrowed jewels. They're not ours to keep, but to rear. They're not given for us to mold into our image. They are not given so that we can force them to fulfill our lives and thus in some way cancel our failures. They are not tools to be used. They are souls to be loved. Parents, your kids are the only things you can ever take to heaven. Nothing else you could take to heaven. The only earthly possessions you could ever take into God's kingdom will be your kids. Notice the next verse in Psalm 127. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. So they're not just a heritage. They're not just a reward. They're like arrows. We need to point them in the right direction then. That's the idea of this psalm. Parents hold the bow and they place their children in the bow to launch them in the direction God wants for their lives. That means the parents need to study their children enough to know their propensities, their likes, their dislikes, how God made them, their gifts and talents, and launch them out there toward the target that God has set. The launch. How do we do that? Well, you'll be familiar with 1 Corinthians thirteen, thirteen. Now abide these three, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. I think if you just take those as sort of your basic template, that'll help you aim the child to launch them. First of all, faith. If you have the faith in God that Elkanah and Hannah did before they had children, then you pass on that faith, that faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You've walked that road, you pass on that faith. It's the best gift possible. I've led thousands of people to receive Jesus Christ. And it's been great, but I'll tell you what. None of those times have been as great as the time my son sat next to me in our car and said, Daddy, I want to pray to receive Christ. And I pulled over, and we prayed on the side of the road. That was epic. Pass the faith on. Faith, hope. Parents, you need to build hope into children. Because this world will suck them dry of hope. It just takes a f- couple years go to school. And they're not worried about what tennis shoes they have as much these days. as about are they going to get shot when they go to school. And there's enough hopelessness in our world that parents need to say, Hey, I've walked this road before. You're going to make it. God has a plan for your life. Let's discover what that is. Build that into them. One of the messages I'm trying to reinforce in my son Nathan's life is the fact that though I'm his father, it's very temporary. One of these days I'm going to pass from the scene of responsibility and perhaps from the scene altogether, but that he has another father, a heavenly father, who will be in charge of him, just like he's my heavenly father, he'll be your heavenly father and guides you through this life. I want to give him hope. And then third, love. Boy, don't kids need unconditional love? A lot, constantly affirmed. They need to hear, your mom and I have always loved you. We love you so much now, and we will always love you no matter what. And that needs to be reaffirmed constantly. Worship and nurture all toward the launch. And then we launch them. Some of you have done that. And you've launched them out, and you've gone like this. Lord, I just pray they don't splat. I hope they hit the target. They're in your hands now, Lord. You direct them. You guide them. But the children come into our lives, and it's a countdown. Ten, nine, eight, seven. Forgive me. I'm just like this. (laughs) But it seems like it goes that fast. Boom, it's over. And they're launched. And where they land depends a lot on how we've worshiped and how we've nurtured. And if you worship God, it's a part of your life, moms and dads. It'll be a part of their lives. They'll see it, it'll be modeled for them. It's a great way to mold the early years and the nurturing. And you'll find that you'll be able to look back and say, parenting wasn't punishment from God, it was awesome, it was glorious. Now, I don't want to press this too far, but I see something in these three points that I've given you this morning, and I noticed it just yesterday. We have worshiping, we have nurturing, and we have launching. That's how the text kind of presents it in that format, those three activities. And then I looked at our bulletin once again, and I saw the purpose of this fellowship is upreach, inreach, and outreach, and I thought, what? it's the same template. Worship is upreach, our relationship to God. Everything depends upon do we have one or do we not. Then inreach to the body of Christ, building up each other in the holy faith so that we can do outreach to get the gospel out. And that's the same thing here. Upreach, their worship, inreach, their nurturing into this child's life. And then outreach, the launch, serve God to reach the world. So, parents, how about if you see your children as ways to reach the world? And one day when your child says, Mom and Dad, I'm going to go to India. I'm going to go to Africa. I'm going to serve the Lord. Don't go, No! We wanted you to be a lawyer in Manhattan. (laughs) Rejoice for the target that God has set. Father, we pray that we would see children as those wonderful people that you have loaned to us to nurture, to rear, to fulfill your will and then to launch them out that they might be men and women who serve you and build up the kingdom. Lord, whether we have children or not this morning, or whether it's been there and done that, some of us have raised kids and have grandkids, still we're called to worship you and what an example that is to other people. Still still we're called to nurture those who are in our lives. And nurture the body of Christ. And Father, I pray that those who do not have children yet would be able to think back to this story in the Bible when they do. Of a great model of a husband and wife who raised kids and shook a nation. And we pray, Lord, that you'd shake our world with the children you've given us. Because this world needs the kind of children that Christian parents can produce. In Jesus' name, amen.